Father, you are high and lifted up. You inhabit eternity. Your name is holy. And you dwell and walk among your people by your word and by your spirit. You've given us your son, Lord, who has become one of us. And it is in his name we can come to you and just ask for your help. I pray that you would meet with us, build up this church, show us who you are, show us more of who you are through this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Pastor Mark Dever was teaching a seminar on God and made a statement about the Almighty. Bill, who was attending the seminar, uh, politely and firmly presented a picture of a friendly deity. Bill said, I like to think of God as wise, but not meddling, compassionate, but not overpowering, ever resourceful, but not interrupting. This, said Bill in that seminar, in conclusion, is how I like to think of God. Mark Dever writes in his book, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, my reply was somewhat sharper than it should have been. Mark said, thank you, Bill, for telling us so much about yourself, but we are concerned to know what God is really like, not simply about our own desires. What do you think about God? Not what do we like to think about God, but who is God? If you're a visitor here, we're spending the next couple months as a bit as been mentioned, uh, going through the Apostles' Creed, that important and ancient document of the church that's traced as far back as 200 AD. A creed is a summary of the Christian faith and outlines the, important, the most important things we need to know about God and ourselves. Maybe you come from a church background that's a little suspicious of church authority, doctrine, and creeds. You prefer more of a no-creed-but-the-Bible approach. It's a good idea in theory, but it actually doesn't work. Because if someone were to ask you, what do you believe, you're not going to pull out your Bible and start reading from Genesis 1-1 and go all the way through to the end of Revelation. You're going to give them your summary. And that summary is your creed. Every person, every church has a creed. It may not be written down, but it's there because we all have beliefs about God and ultimate reality. But here's the important thing. Having the right creed, having the right beliefs matter. We've heard about Sheilaism, this belief that personal faith, that religion is really a personal thing only, guided by your inner voice to love yourself, be gentle, and take care of one another. Jesus Christ in John 17, 3 says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So it matters whether or not you know the one true God. It matters because it's means the difference between eternal life in heaven or eternal destruction in hell. Sheilaism doesn't save, only leads to destruction. Church historian Philip Schaff said, as the Lord's prayer is the prayer of prayers, as the Ten Commandments is the law of laws, so the Apostles' Creed is the creed of creeds. And today we're going to look at and explore what it means that God is our creator. The Apostles' Creed says, I believe in God the Father, Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. So if someone asks you, who is God? What is he like? One of the first things that needs to pop into our minds is creator. Creator. God is certainly more than that. He's more than creator, but he's not less. And more basic than God as our redeemer is God as our creator. Because long before he rescued anyone, 
He created everyone. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created everything for His glory that we might know and worship Him. That's the takeaway from our scripture, from our word today. In the beginning, God created everything for His glory that we might know and worship Him. I want to take a moment to look at the historical background for Genesis 1 and then go into the nuts and bolts of how and why God created and then the fact that all of that leads us straight to worship. So the historical background, Genesis, Genesis 1.1. Genesis is the first book in the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Old Testament written by Moses. The first five books of the Bible give us a theological history for God's people, the Israelites. Moses wants Israel, God's people, to know something very important, and it's not the age of the earth, as interesting and as important of a question that might be. And it's not scientific formulas. He wants Israel, God's people, to know that God is the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. There might be the gods of the nations out there, the idols of the other nations, but there is the one true God. Isaiah 45, 18 says, For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, He is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Yahweh, the God of Israel, the Lord, He is God, and there is no other. If you're not a believer here, thank you. Thank you for visiting. Thank you for coming to Risen Hope Church. We want you to know that you are always welcome to, be, to visit our church. But you need to know that everyone worships something. We all worship something. You might not think of it as worship, but all of us build our lives on something. So that one thing that's the most important thing to us, and that thing is our God. How trustworthy is your God? Maybe it's money. Few of us, if any, were alive during the Great Depression. But when that stock market crashed, we all saw the weakness of money and the economy. Maybe it's technology, but it only takes a power outage for us to see how technology can be so powerless, no pun intended. Or maybe it's Sheilaism, where you, want, you prefer to do spirituality on your own terms, what seems right to you. Moses wants Israel to know that their Redeemer God, the one who rescued God's people out of slavery in Egypt, He is the Creator God. Creator, He wants them to know this, is more basic of, of an identity for God than even Redeemer. Because long before God appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, long before the 12 sons of Jacob, the patriarchs, went down to Egypt to escape famine, long before the Exodus, where God brought out his people with a mighty hand and outstretched arm, long before all those things, God created everything. That means the sun, moon, stars, visible, in invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by God and for God. That means Israel, they have no need to fear the Egyptians. They have no need to fear those Canaanite giants. They have no reason to fear their enemies because God made their enemies, and they're nothing compared to Him. God brought Israel's enemies into this world, and He can take them out of this world. 
So that should give Israel full confidence that God is able to fulfill all of his promises, to give them the land that he swore to give to their forefathers. And this matters because if God can't create, he can't consummate. If he can't create, he can't consummate. To consummate means to complete. Creation started good, but it was far from perfect, far from complete. It's one thing to be taken out of slavery in Egypt, but another thing to possess the promised land. And if God isn't the creator, if he isn't this almighty creator, then someone or something else is the creator. Someone or something else is more mighty, and there's no guarantee that God could carry out his purposes. Have you ever started something that you couldn't finish? Have you started something you couldn't finish? Well, Teresa and I are deal hunters. We love to find a good deal. And several years back, Teresa wanted to try her hand at reupholstering some furniture. So we found this cool vintage chase lounge off of Craigslist for 20 bucks. So it was a good deal. It was no bigger than this small coffee table. And it had this deep forest green velvet fabric that covered it. But there were a couple problems. Uh, first was uh, one of the legs was broken off and it needed to be wood glued. Another is that we didn't have any experience reupholstering furniture, so it was really slow going, taking off that fabric and figuring out what to do. And finally, we were really busy packing and getting ready to move up to this area so we could attend seminary. So that chase lounge sat in the corner of our house for months. Our movers came. They finally came and they packed up everything, and we didn't know what to do with that chase lounge. We weren't willing to move it almost 2,000 miles up here, but we weren't prepared to get rid of it either. Finally, the day came for us to get in our car and just drive up here. So we looked at that chase lounge, we opened our dumpster, and we just tossed it in there. Just tossed it in there, gave up on it. We didn't finish what we started. Life happened. It happens to all of us. We're finite, we're limited, things happen. God's not like that. Life doesn't just happen to God. God isn't limited by time or space or experience because he's the almighty God. He's going to finish what he started because not only is he alpha, he is omega. That means Eden's glory, as awesome and as amazing as that was, would one day be eclipsed by the far greater glory of the new heavens and the new earth. If Adam and Eve had passed the test not to eat from the forbidden tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would have gone straight into heaven straight into a consummated creation, straight into a perfected creation where the sun would be no more, the chaotic sea would be no more, and where the ability to fall into sin would be no more. And even before God started, even before he created anything, he had that goal in mind that he would be the God of his people and we would, be, we would have God as our God, that God and his people we would be together in this eternal and uninterrupted joy and delight forever and ever. That's where creation was headed. And so it matters that God is all-powerful. It matters that he's the almighty creator because if he's going to be able to do that, he needs to be almighty, all-powerful. We need to know that not only does he save us now, but he will complete the plan of salvation and take us home to be with him forever. Louis Burkhoff writes, the doctrine of creation implies that while God is self-existent and self-sufficient, infinite and eternal, the world is dependent, finite, and temporal. 
Burkhoff reminds us that there's two different classes of beings in this universe. There's creator, and then there's creature. There's one who creates, the almighty creator, and then there are the created creatures. Creation is dependent, finite, temporal, and is no match for God. Satan as a creature is no match for God. So that means nothing can stop the self-existent, self-sufficient, infinite, and eternal God from carrying out all of his perfect purposes for his people. That gives us confidence as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death when trials and difficulties and sorrows come. When storms hit, when a hurricane crashes into your life, either literally or figuratively, it's not some vague power, not some powerless God who has to get a grip on things, who is with us. No, it is the almighty God, the all-powerful creator God, the Lord who is with us. In the beginning, God created everything for his glory that we might know and worship him. So that's some historical background for Genesis. But how about the nuts and bolts? How did God create? Why did he create? The Bible doesn't tell us everything we want to know about creation, but it does tell us three things we need to know. God created everything first out of nothing, second with a divine word, and third for his glory. So God created everything out of nothing with a divine word and for his glory. So God created everything out of nothing. He calls into existence things that do not exist. Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. God doesn't depend on the universe as if he needed to create a place to live he needed some air, food, or water, as if he was homeless until the universe was created. No, the universe depends on God. He created the universe out of nothing, no raw materials. Human beings, we need raw materials. You want to build a house, you got to have brick, you got to have concrete, you got to have cement, you got to have wood, otherwise you're not building a house. You want to build a skyscraper, you need steel and glass. But God needed nothing to create everything. Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So God created everything out of nothing, but he did that with a divine word. A divine word. That means he simply speaks, and then things happen. He takes six days to create everything, to speak creation into existence. During the first three days, he creates these three separate realms, light, air, and land. On day one, God the Father says, let there be light, and then there's light. Light shines in the darkness. Day two, God the Father says, let there be an expanse, and God creates the air. There's a sky that separates the waters above from the waters below. On day three, God the Father says, let the waters under the heavens be gathered into a single place and dry land and vegetation appear. That's the first half. And then God takes the second set of three days to fill these realms with, these, fill these realms with life. So he takes those realms, light, air, and land, and fills them up. So on day four, God says, let there be lights in the expanse of heaven to separate the day from the night. 
God creates the sun, moon, and stars to mark days, seasons, and years. And what God does on day four is create time. And notice, notice something really fascinating. God created light on day one, but the sun actually isn't created until day four. Did you catch that? That reminds us that, once again, creation depends on God and not the other way around. So God doesn't need the sun for light. He uses the sun for light, but he doesn't need it because he himself is light. On day five, God says, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. The sky is filled with birds and the waters are filled with fish. And then on day six, the final day of creation, God says, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. And he fills land with life, all different kinds of living creatures. And then on that sixth day, we see the pinnacle, the crown of his creation, humanity, mankind. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Every human being, each one of us, were created either male or female. It's hardwired into our DNA as image bearers of Almighty God. There are voices in this culture which say that your gender, your sexuality is something that you can choose, something you can change. Don't believe it for a moment. So God creates with this divine word, this powerful word, but it remains a mystery. For centuries, for thousands of years, God's people would wonder, what is this divine word? God speaks and creation happens. Well, thousands of years later, God would draw back the curtain and show us that the divine word is the Son of God, distinct from the Father and yet fully God. In a similar but very faint way, the word, you can think of it like the words you speak. The words you speak are distinct from you and yet they're part of you. But here's where the analogy breaks down because your words aren't fully you. They're not fully a person. The word, Jesus Christ, is fully God. John 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything that was made. Jesus Christ, the Word of God, is God, and all things were made through Him, made through the Son. That means we worship the Son as Creator, just as we worship the Father as Creator. So God creates everything out of nothing with a divine Word for His glory. At the end of those six days, God saw everything He made, and behold, it was very good. It was very good because God himself is good, and creation reveals something of the creativity, the majesty, the glory of Almighty God. Psalm 19, 1 and 2. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. The heavens declare, they proclaim the glory of God. Creation showcases our great and awesome creator God. Creation, as you look around you, everything you can see and taste and touch, it's this unending day by day, week by week, never stopping proclamation of the majesty, power, and glory of God. 
Never for a moment does creation take a break from confronting each one of us with the reality of God. So every time you see something with your eyes, you hear something with your ears, you taste something with your mouth, you smell something with your nose, or you feel something with your hands, you are, you are experiencing the reality of God as creator of everything. So we've looked at the historical context, Genesis 1.1. Before God was redeemer, he is creator. We've looked at the nuts and bolts, how God speaks everything into existence. And now all of that, the reality of God as creator, that leads us to, straight to one place, and that leads us straight to worship. Worship. As creatures, we owe allegiance, obedience, worship, and love to our creator. Revelation 4.11 says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. That puts us in our place. That puts us in our place. God is the potter. We are the clay. He is the sovereign king, and we are subjects of that king. He is the almighty creator who does what he pleases among the hosts of heaven and the peoples of the earth, and none can stay, none can stop his hand or even say to him, what have you done? Things start to get confusing when creatures start thinking and acting like the creator. It happens when we do what we please, and we think that we're the almighty creator, sovereign king, and, or the potter. It happens when we think that we're the center of the universe, that somehow God, he might be out there, but I'll call him when I need him, like I call the plumber or the repair guy. Bertrand Russell was a famous uh, and brilliant atheist philosopher. He won the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1950. In 1927, he gave this lecture called, Why I Am Not a Christian. He had looked at all the reasons for the existence of God and didn't believe any of them. Couldn't bring himself to believe. He always felt that religion was this thing that human beings, that we invented to feel better about ourselves so we could be better people, do better things. But at the end of the day, religion was this harmful superstition. In an interview that was published after his death, the interviewer asked him, what if you're wrong? You say you don't believe in God, you have no desire to worship him, honor him, follow him, you don't think he even exists, but what if you're wrong? What if you die and come face to face with the Almighty and find out you are wrong? And the author writes, confronted with the Almighty, Russell would ask, sir, why did you not give me better evidence? Why didn't you give, why didn't you give me better evidence? Russell died of the flu in 1970. We have no idea what he said when he met the Almighty. But I don't think it was, why didn't you give me enough evidence? It might very well have been, why did I deny all the evidence you gave me? Why did I suppress the truth that you gave me? Romans chapter 1, 18 through 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness in unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. There's no such thing as an atheist. There's only those who have clearly perceived the truth of God and chosen to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So they are without excuse. Bertrand Russell, when he finally met the Almighty face to face, was without excuse. Every creature, because we are confronted with the reality of the Creator, is without excuse. No one on the day of judgment will have an excuse. Some of you might be wondering, well, what about science? Doesn't science disprove the Bible? If you're wondering, well, should I believe the Bible or should I believe science? You're actually not asking the right question. Science, when it's done rightly, when you do science in submission to the Creator, to Almighty God, science done that way is actually perfectly compatible with God's Word. Science and the Bible are actually asking very different questions. Bruce Waltke writes, Genesis is prescriptive, answering questions of who and why and what ought to be, whereas the purpose of science is to be descriptive, answering the questions of what and how. The narrator of the creation account wants to provide answers to the questions science cannot answer. Who has created this world and for what purpose? We need science. We need scientists. And they serve such an important purpose by studying creation, understanding how God's creation works and how it all fits together. But science can't tell you who created the world and for what purpose. If you're expecting science to answer those questions, it's like asking, how do you deep fry shrimp and going straight to an astronomy textbook? You go to an astronomy textbook to figure out how to cook, you're going to the wrong place. If you want to know who created us and why, you've got to go straight to the Creator Himself. And where science denies the clear teachings of Scripture, God's people throughout all the ages have always put their trust in God and not man. So, when the, so the Word of God tells us God created everything, every plant, animal, bird, human being, every species in its final form. The word of man in the theory of evolution tells us that life evolved from non-life, that simple organisms over a period of millions and millions of years evolved into complex organisms. Science is wrong on this one. And one day evolution will be proven as wrong, just like every other bad theory out there, like the earth is flat or the earth is in the center of the galaxy. And the reason that science isn't always done correctly is our sin. And sin is actually the, the fundamental problem for each one of us as human beings. As human beings, we've rebelled against our almighty creator God. And our sinful hearts mean that we would rather do anything except bow the knee and worship our creator. And not only our hearts, but those three spheres of creation are also corrupted. The light of the sun doesn't just provide us warmth, it can also cause sunburn and famine and drought. The realms of air and water now experience storms and floods. And our land is infected with thorns and weeds and subject to earthquakes. 
But the good news is that God entered our busted world. The creator became a creature. God became man. The word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ became a man so that he could redeem the creation that we ruined. He absorbed the curse of sin on his body on the cross when he died. And after three days, he rose victorious. So that means give up your Sheilaism. Give up trying to be your own God. Give up living your own way. Give up your own sin and turn to Christ today and and trust that his death on the cross is full and perfect payment for your sin and rebellion against your creator God. And when you return to your creator in that way, by placing your full faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, then your creator will be your redeemer. In the beginning, God created everything for his glory that we might know and worship him. And when we begin begin to see how big our God is, that that, that puts everything in perspective. I want us to have a small taste of just how big and how awesome and how mighty our creator God is. So we're going to watch a video, it's about a minute long, that shows us the relative sizes of the things that God has created in this ginormous, magnificent universe. So check this out. How many, how many earths do you think will, <clears throat> would fit in that red hypergiant? Anyone have any guess? It's not, not one billion, not one trillion, that's with a T. <clears throat> it's over 2,700 trillion earths could fit in that largest known star. Isaiah 40, 26 through 29. Lift up your eyes on high and see... <clears throat> Who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. So church, God, God is bigger 
than any problem you might be facing at the moment. God is more powerful than any sin you might be battling. God is greater than any fear you might be going through. The everla- and not only is he the everlasting God, he is our God. He gives power to the faint. And whoever has no might, he increases strength. So risen hope, as we go out those doors this week, this year, let us love and worship and honor this creator God, this almighty God. Amen. Amen. Amen.